Well, that's what you really need from life, isn't it? An armadillo that makes an amusing honking noise. I'm very excited about the Saturday night I'm, I've got this weekend. Oh, what are you doing? I'm, uh, I'm babysitting my nephew, which okay. on the surface doesn't sound very exciting, but we're going to watch Gladiators and eat pizza. Oh, nice. And that just that's very feels, 90s. I know, it feels so close to my childhood mm, that um, oh. I'm going to be hit very hard with some nostalgia watching Gladiators and eating pizza. Oh, that's so nice. Jammies and eating on the sofa. Uh, probably not the sofa because um, my sister scares me. Her house is very clean. Oh, right. Sorry, I thought he was staying with you. Oh, no, no. I'm going to hers. I thought you were going to say something like, probably not the sofa, because I don't want food on it. I was like, what? Yeah, Can no, I, I eat that? on the sofa. <laughs> I am a food on the sofa person. <laughs> we used to get lost in your old sofa. <laughs> Three days once. <laughs> is that Amelia Earhart? <laughs> Did I hear something about her being found? Like, obviously not alive and well, but... <laughs> Yeah, no, she turned up at Pub I'm sure I had something about they worked out where she was or what happened to her. I have totally missed this, but I have not engaged in any pop culture past about 2005 for the last week, so... Uh... Oh, well, to catch you up on the very few that I've been aware of, yeah, um, a financial advice columnist got scammed out of $50,000. Oh, that I saw. I have had a few brief Twitter strolls. Uh, she got scammed out of $50,000 and like handed it over in a, in a shoebox to yeah, someone no. she thought was an FBI agent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it turns out that she's very rich and out of touch, kind of that kind yeah. of person. Um, which is who you really want to take financial advice from. It's the only kind of person I take financial advice from, which is why I'm ruined, apart from these three shoeboxes, which will be my <laughs> salvation as of tomorrow. Um, but uh, what else? Uh, everyone hated Greg Wallace for a day or two because he did an oh, out yeah, of no. touch wanky interview. Yeah, that one I saw, that was last week. I've hated Greg Wallace for ages. I think everyone's late getting on the train, but I did read the interview and it was hilarious. Oh, see, I'm, I'm going to take the other contrary way, which is... I've never particularly hated him, and that wasn't any more wanky than any other celebrity interview I've seen. I think felt... that, that massively got overblown. <laughs> it did read like a comedy piece, especially oh, in the. Uh, it did. But so I'm a they... bit of a historian, oh. so I play Civilization for three hours. I know, but so do they all, don't they? Oh no, they God do all damn. read like comedy. But I thought I was reading a parody piece at mm. first. I um, think it might have hit a bit harder because, like, he's got the geezer kind of bravado yeah, thing going there on. There is that. Mm. Yeah. Whereas if that had come from like Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow is too low hanging fruit, but yeah, that <laughs> yeah. kind of person, yeah. <laughs> to be fair, my hatred of Greg Wallace is just I tend to very quickly form either a strong like or dislike to anyone who hosts some kind of competition cooking show. Oh uh, yeah, see I think my my like bias towards him slightly might be because I used to love MasterChef. I like MasterChef, I just don't like him on it. About the I other fella. He's... I don't mind the other fella. What's he called? Australian um, fella. John Turoid. Yeah, he was all right. Um, I prefer the Australian MasterChef, actually, or at least the early seasons of it. I really love Australian MasterChef. Fuck. I've got buttery biscuit base in my head now. How oh, has I'm that sorry. not come up on Twitter during this? I'm pretty sure it must have done oh, something. must have done. Oh, I had vague news of us being in a recession again, at which point I definitely mm. just mm. stopped looking at the internet. I just us personally. <laughs> Well, the UK, but yeah. us. I feel, I feel it'll affect us, really, the two of us, more than it'll affect anyone else. I personally have gone into a recession. Something, something Mercury. Oh, Mercury's in recession again. <laughs> the country's in retrograde. <laughs> oh, where does austerity fit into a horoscope? Aries. Yeah. Um, I've been playing the remastered Tomb Raider 
which is hilariously bad because I decided just because I wanted to sit on the sofa to get it on my PlayStation instead. Oh, I didn't know it was out yet. Oh, yes. yeah, it came no, out on Valentine's Day. I did. Day. I saw your tweet about Valentine's Day. Yes. Yes. So you did get um, it on the PlayStation. I did get it on the PlayStation. Oh. I have regretsies because um, it's really difficult. To, like, I'm so used to the keyboard controls and also because it's it's not really a full remaster. It's a reskin. They've just made it look nicer. Sure. Um, so everything is like very much you move like a square at a time effectively and although you can walk and run. Uh, so using it, it was designed pre axis controls. So like yeah. analog PlayStation sticks. Uh, and it just doesn't, I had to train myself out of things like trying to follow myself with the camera with the right analog stick, which is how I play all PlayStation games. Yeah. Yeah. Are you getting yeah. into it now though? I am getting into it now. I got That's through, good. got through the Italian levels. Gone to the oil rig. Wee. Wee. <laughs> oh, best Italian accents. <laughs> Do we have any Italian listeners? I mean, not anymore, but... Uh, <laughs> they have all logged Five minutes ago, now. did we have any Italian listeners? <laughs> I haven't looked at the map for a while. <laughs> if you're Italian and listening to this, yeah. firstly, we're very sorry. <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> sorry, secondly, fuck. What's wrong with me? But we very much appreciate, um, you know, food. Yeah. And you as listeners. Yeah. Jesus. I know um, we've personally, the podcast has gone into a recession. But um, <laughs> Do you want to make a podcast? I would love to make a podcast. Let's make one. Hello and welcome to The Tree Shall Make You Fret, a podcast in which we are reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series, one at a time in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen. And I'm Francine Carroll. I apparently just forgot how to say book. This Beck. is part of <laughs> Could have just redone it, but no, let's mock me and move on. Um, this is part three of our discussion of making money, going from chapter eight to the end of the book. Woohoo! We're getting that. Um, now on spoilers, we are a spoiler light podcast, obviously heavy spoilers for the book Making Money. Uh, but we will avoid spoiling any major future events in the Discworld series, and we're saving any and all discussion of the final Discworld novel, The Shepherd's Crown, until we get there, so you, dear listener, can come on the journey with us. Galloping uncomfortably on a golem horse. Whomst among us. Uh, follow-up. Quick bit of follow-up. Oh. I Tis Pity She's an Instructor in Unarmed Combat, while specifically referencing the play Tis Pity She's a Whore by John Ford. It's a 17th century thing. Mm. Um, so thank you for the people that wrote in for that. And uh, there was a wonderful discussion of col- what collops are, um, basically thin cuts of meat, potentially from a scallop. Oh, yeah, there was a discussion in this, the Discord about the etymology, right? I meant to look into that and didn't. Uh, so, Making Money. Francine, do you want to tell us what happened previously on? Yeah, okay. Previously on Making Money. Cosmo lavishes eyebrows are working overtime as he cajoles, bribes, and then threatens Moist von Litvig in a poor imitation of Lord Vetinari. Despite Cosmo's cosplay, Moist is unwavering. He's on a roll, and the Times takes notes before Egg Street spends them. Soon enough, the man in the golden hat is doing business with the King of the Golden River, and it's time to make a mint. While Moist's newly freed forger starts scribbling, Adora Bell demands linguistic answers from the university, and something terrible is happening to Mr. Bent's calculations. Goodness. Now what, Joanna? What happens now? A lot. Oh, gush. Gush and gosh. And good. Well, we can we can really Sick. speak today. <laughs> Every Burke in there. 
<laughs> Every book, one at a time in chronological order. We're going to be here a long time. <laughs> right. Um, Please. In this section, uh, in chapter eight, the gloop has gone a bit too accurate and it's indicating that the gold is gone. Moistened drapes can't find bent and the bank's suffering for a lack of keys. As Adora comes down for dinner, there's a brief fusspot panic, but a hot, cool sheep's head calms things down. <laughs> here to, in chapter nine, heretofore collects a cribbins for Cosmo. <laughs> And Moist realises that Bent might have taken refuge in the bank's vaults. The only way in is from above, and the watch aren't pleased about the apparent break-in. Moist and Carrot have a chat, the gold's still very gone, and Mr Fussport gives a statement. Cribbins gives a statement to Cosmo, and meanwhile at the DPMC, Fleed manifests. He knows something about the coming golems. Moist is not under arrest, for now, and he can't sleep. After a warming cup of blot, he rattles his drawers for annoyer. <laughs> In Chapter 10, Cosmo arrives for an audit of the bank and there's a potential mob gathering. Harry King makes a deposit and Cosmo almost causes a riot when suddenly the city's golems just stop. Formant 4000 and as Fleed gleefully observes from his travelling circle, the Omnian golems arrive, take positions and begin to guard. A council gathers and war comes up, but Moist has an idea. Vesinari decrees the new golems as tools, but Hubert interrupts with warning, warnings of an impending economic disaster. Moist grabs some new vocabulary and prepares to give the new golems some marching orders. In chapter 11, Vesinari considers committees, but the golems are busy digging themselves a hole. Moist wants to replace gold with the golem standard. The city arrives, and Moist and Mr. Fussbot find themselves in custody. Cosmo is not happy about oversight and starts making plans to take Bent out of the picture and become a beautiful butterfly. Bent wakes, Ms. Drapes recounts events, and just as the banker blossoms with a funny turn, enter Cranberry. Now we just need a bakery. Moist is slash and on the tri on trial in the Great Hall. <laughs> and a jape may be afoot as the watch finds bodies at Bent's place. Moist reveals his past employment to the assembled and Mr. Bent makes an entrance with pies akimbo. After a pineapple intercept, Drapes reveals the truth. The lavishes sold the gold. Cosmo isn't feeling well and as Pucci interjects and admits to everything, the new veterinary walks into the sun. Mm -hmm. In... Chapter 13, Moist is awake, Gladys is chilly, and Adora's just a bit irked. Bent, or Charlie Benito, is doing perfectly well at the Fool's Guild. At the palace, Moist reveals the golem secret to Vetinari, and someone's revealed it across the clacks. Cribbins tries to grab Adora, but his teeth finally turn on him. The money's printing, there's taxman plans afoot, and the gloopers under control, and Hubert returns the gold. And finally, in the epilogue, both the real Lord Vetinari and Professor Fleed settle into their new homes. Lovely. I think. I tried to make it short. <laughs> oh, no, I just mean the happy ending. Oh, yes, it is a very lovely ending. Um, helicopter and loincloth watch. Mm -hmm. uh, for helicopter, I am going for Mr. Fussbot and his wind-up clockwork item of an intimate nature. Sure. Um, specifically, the bouncing up and down with it. And what was your helicopter last week? Because somebody said in the Discord that it was the most tenuous so far, and I'd already forgotten what it was. Uh, it was the bouncing turnip. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. Fair. <laughs> Not taking questions at this time. Um, at the top of each jump, its unbalancing action will cause the little dog to do one slow cartwheel in the air. So feels very helicopter. It's so funny. <laughs> it's so funny. Yep. Uh, for for loincloth, uh, we're going with Benito's marvellous bouncing trousers. Of course. Of course. Um, and just... I have an irrelevant elephant. Oh, yay. Love an irrelevant elephant. I probably should have had two because there was, of course, the balloon elephant. Slash murder weapon. Yes. And uh, then a uh, mention of an elephant that was coming in to try and pull somebody's tooth out in an hilarious yes. manner. Um, but I have one. I've sent you a link on Signal, if you still got that open. Uh, yes. Um, it is 
from a uh, cool-looking blog, and the writer has found a receipt for the obsolete Asiatic National Bank of Salem, uh, which I thought was also relevant for, for bank reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's got a cool logo of an elephant holding a key, which the, the writer has clipped to make like a cool fabric pattern with. And I just thought you'd enjoy that. I am delighted. So I'll link it in the show notes and show you that. And it's a really cool little motif that. elephant with a key. Oh, and just for keeping track of where we are, uh, we are in the century of the anchovy. Okay, good. Just in case we're wondering what century we were in, it's oh, the anchovy. I always am, yeah. Quotes, who's first? I think it might be me, just. Lots of people had been telling him, Bernari, things in the last hour. They told him things for all sorts of reasons. To gain some credit, to gain some money, for a favour, quid pro quo, out of malice, mischief, or, suspiciously, out of a professed regard for the public good. What it amounted to was not information, but a huge argus-eyed ball of little wiggling factoids out of which some information could, with care, be teased. Such a good line. I know. Information overload beautifully uh, illustrated there. Wiggling factoids. Mm. Grace. How about yours? I went with a short one, because we've got a lot to talk about today. The pile of passionless frippery had a brooding alien look, like some sea monster of the abyss that had been dragged unceremoniously from its native darkness into the light of the sun. Mm. <laughs> this is, of course, in reference to uh, um, Mr. Lavish's special cupboard. The special cupboard. I've shoehorned a lot about the special cupboard into this episode. I was guessing I think it's probably very would, funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but before we get to the special cupboard, let's talk characters. Should we start with Moist? Go on, then. Let's talk about Moist. He's having, he's he's had a big day. I think he deserves a little chat, doesn't he? The the kind of engaging nature of his narrative, I found particularly impressive in this section because it really pushed the what is objectively, I'd say, more interesting bit of news, i.e., golden golems, as as we were led to believe, arriving in onto the back burner in favour of his as as is then pointed out the sideshow yeah. of him fucking about with the bank. And it's done really well. You don't at any point feel like you're missing part of the story by sticking mm. with Moist. Yeah, yeah. Right up until you realise that the the crowd's making noises all the way over there in Angmore Pork and then it shifts the camera very nicely. Yeah, there's some really good point of view stuff in this. Mm. So the point of view, uh, fairly early in this section, he's, uh, Moist is interviewed by Carrot and I, I like, mm. as I've talked about a lot, seeing f- characters we're familiar with through fresh perspectives. But I really like the detail... He could read most people, but the captain was a closed book in a locked bookcase. He's um he definitely comes across a lot more coldly competent in this than in most, doesn't he? Or I think Carrot. because where we see Carrot in like the watch books, we're spending a lot of time with him, so we see the competence and then also the bits where he misses stuff. Yeah. But we we don't see things from his yeah. perspective. Yeah. Whereas Thank you if- for telling me that, sir. It was a very <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I also like that Moist figures out who the werewolf actually is in this. Eventually. <laughs> um, we get some of his religious background, which I completely forgot was a thing when we were talking about potatoes yeah. last week, that Moist is a member of the Plain Potato Church. He is indeed, um, and we now know there is at least one schism within the um, Potato Church. Yes, because they're not fans of the Orthodox Potato Church. No, um, I can't remember the difference already, but that seems to so marry with everything else I know about religious schisms so <laughs> or is it his followers were oh the excesses of the ancient and orthodox potato church they, they ah, shunned yeah. those um mashed potatoes i did like the cannon. line most people used candles and sat on sheep perfect 
I like the line about him praying as well. He'd hated praying. It felt as though he was opening a big black hole into space and at any moment something might reach through and grab him, which, like, on mm. Discworld is, is more of a possibility. Yeah, absolutely. You know, copper boots and all. Um, but it's a, it's a nice look at his character. He is someone who has dropped faith and praying from an early age and gone for his only having faith in himself instead to get yeah. himself in and out of situations. Absolutely. Another cultural... Uh, tie back to Uberwald, we have this splot, 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 which I had a little Google of. Couldn't find direct parallel. Um, listeners, I'm sure you all have theories. Please let me know. Uh, but I did find somebody making an unhinged version on Reddit, and so I'll link to that. It includes both lemon juice and milk. So make of that what you no. want. <laughs> Just, Just gonna what? send you that. <laughs> Just gonna nope right now. You don't have to look at it that. right now, but you know, I know what it's like. If it's in the show notes, you might you might be able to ignore it. But if it's in your signal, you're not. Two a.m. It's gonna call to you. You're gonna look at it. I'm struggling not to look at it now. I'm just <laughs> trying to remember what else I wanted to say about Moist. Oh yeah, there's a really good run of moments with him. So you have uh, beginning of a chapter as he's he's getting ready to face the crowd assembling mm. at the bank. He gives himself a little pep talk. Talk yourself out of a situation you can't talk your way out of. Make your own luck. Put on a show. Yeah. If you fall, let them remember how it turned into a dive. And then not long after the above, he's musing on the thoughts of the crowd, which is um, how they're all hoping it's not true. And this idea of mm. hope, the voice that said this isn't really happening, that drove people to turn out the same pocket three times in a fruitless search for lost keys. The mad belief that the world is bound to start working properly again and there will be keys. When did we last have a, a soliloquy on hope? That was in Going Postal. It, it was Going Postal. Ah. It, it was very different perspectives on hope and using people's hope from Moist and Reach of Guilt. So I like it coming back right. here. Yes. But he's sort of looking at this as something other people do while kind of doing it himself. Mm. He's convinced himself that it will, there will be keys if he can just talk for long enough. You can see himself talking, persuading himself. Yeah. Out of old mindsets, like at one point he says something like, he thought he was just going to be making money in a place full of stuffy bankers. Like, no, you fucking didn't. No. <laughs> you went reset. into this knowing and hoping it yeah. would be more exciting than a pocket full of blackjacks. Yeah. Vesinari said someone will probably try to kill you and yeah. then you took the job. Yeah, yeah. And then like pissed everybody off immediately. <laughs> but then, yeah, he does end up talking himself out of it, but he does it by just admitting to all of his crimes coming out mm -hmm. as a crook and Vetinari willing to go with it. Very exciting. Luckily, Vetinari, if he hadn't already knew that Moist was going to do this, is quick thinking enough to spin it. And probably had mentally Perfectly. prepared himself for that as mm. an option because there well, weren't many course, options yeah. left to him. Yeah. And, you know, what if it had come out a different way? I'm sure he already had the spiel. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, you Fucking know... Fucking it was it was really satisfying watching him kind of get one over get one over on Cribbins in that mm. bit. This ace in the hole that Cosmo thought he had, this guy that can reveal everything, and Moist just yeah. doing it. Talking about switching perspectives, though, actually, um, the moment where we, we've had our um, our big climax, and as as Pratchett always does, he introduces another little danger right at the end uh, when Cribbins comes and holds a knife to Adorabel. I just thought that was a really good thudding back to earth moment from um from Moist, you know, Mercury tap dance. Yeah. Suddenly we realise that even though, you know, they've both just talked their way into this fantastical situation and, and out of trouble and the you know, the the golden tongue pair off to save the day again, uh just one fucking madman with a knife can change all that. Yeah. Doesn't fucking matter who you are. 
That well, was a good nice moment. to know that Carrot and Nobby are in the shadows. <laughs> and we're keeping an eye on things just in case. And the, uh, I don't know, uh, denta, dentist ex machina, the teeth giving in. Mm, den- denta ex machina, I think. Yeah, yeah, denta ex machina. Yeah, yeah, perfect. <laughs> I didn't think of it. Oh, oh. machina ex denta. Yeah. <laughs> um, God, we're hilarious. Oh, <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> One last bit of little Stop mocking us while we're laughing at our stupid jokes. <laughs> little moist bit is that uh, at the end he points out that the watch are watching, you know, the trolls relaying mm. the, the cobblestones and mm. uh, these various obvious watchmen undercover. It's <laughs> like, oh, now you're observant, moist. You yeah, finally yeah. learned after a book of getting into the wrong coach. All right, he only well, did it twice. Calm down a bit now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Vesinari mm-hmm. also having a bit of a day. Oh gosh. Good, good though, isn't he? Good though. I, all the stuff about the crosswords brought me a lot of joy. Mm-hmm. Um, the the uh, Jikan no Muda, which is obviously a Sudoku, was Japanese mm-hmm. for I, I'm not saying it right, probably uh, Japanese for waste of time. Is it really? <laughs> yes. And uh, talking about the the other person who got the crossword clue, which is Miss Grace Speaker, who runs the pet shop in Pelicle Steps. Pelicle Steps is a lovely, isn't it? Um. Lo- lovely t- uh, series of syllables, yeah. Um, but I like this. We need to keep an eye on it. A woman who knows a word like that can't be happy dispensing dog food. Yeah, fucking. <laughs> right, though. A, yeah. And it's a nice callback to earlier in the book where he's in the blind letter office. Uh, oh, this yeah. similar version of solving something akin to crossword clues. The actual um, crossword clue, that the cryptic style crossword clue that's in there, shake and play or shift the load. Uh, did you work that one out? Uh, no, I, I highlighted it to work out later because I was in a hurry and then I didn't. Oh, I googled it because oh. um, I'm bad at cryptic crosswords. Oh. Go on. I worked out it was an anagram and then I gave well up. Uh, it's, cart- <laughs> it's cart horse. Uh, so players in orchestra and then. Very nice, very nice. <laughs> um, but yeah, that veterinary's general, like, um, there's moist thought at one point, like disappointed teacher tone throughout. I very much enjoyed just things like, um, you found a 40-foot killer golem now? Well, I'm sure some ingenious person will devise one for you eventually. When they do, don't hesitate to refrain from bringing it home. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of the, the gentle chastisement of these two, you know, golden children with their super weapons. <laughs> uh, right at the end as well, when he's trying to get golems given the, this secret, Mr. Lipvig, do I need a badge that says tyrant? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just a couple of reminders. It's like, well, actually, no, I do not need to listen to you. Yeah. Um, please, please uh, take the time to remember how nice I am compared to all the rest of them. Uh, do you remember what my predecessor would have done for his amusement? I think it involved some terrible tortures. Uh, oh, yeah. It was having someone pulled apart by tortoises. Yeah. Yeah. Committees are cheaper than Iron Maidens. No, more expensive than Iron Maidens. So be grateful. Biscuits and tea. Yeah, that that whole thing that comes from him giving Moist the sword, mm. um, and very much knows that he holds all of the power still in that situation, and he's sort of being impressed at how distastefully Moist handles a weapon. Yes, yes. No, I did love that actually. Just seeing how much I say like, you're more uncomfortable now you've got a weapon, or you're more frightened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's um, not. I mean, Moist is just so. Very much not a violent man. No. Uh, which is lovely to see. 
especially having learned that he had killed two point whatever decimal people mm. through his previous actions. Yeah, had horrible nightmares. Yeah. And the letters really did it did him in. Moist kind of adulation of Vesinari when he thinks he's figured out that it was Vesinari who sent the clacks around telling mm. everyone the golem secret. A man who thinks war is a wicked waste of customers, a man who's a better con artist than I'll ever be, who thinks committees are a kind of waste paper basket, who can turn <laughs> sizzle into sausage every day. Absolutely. <laughs> I love the respect in that. On the other end of the spectrum. Cosmo. What a... Oh dear. So much fun here. <laughs> All the focus in the book on his like fucked up finger while he stays eloquent on the surface... But yeah. Uh, the line, another red rose of pain bloomed all the way to his shoulder is an incredible look at how he's thinking about the pain from this mm. horrible, rotting finger. Yes, and he, he's decided it's a, it's helping him think clearly. It's a, it's a good thing, really, that he's in so much pain and he's just yeah. managing to completely block out the idea of what's going on. There's a really great line as well, early in the section when he's talking about a run on the banks and he describes it as watching a beached whale being eaten alive Ooh. by crabs. Yeah. I, I also, I, I really like the way that it's um, not contrasted exactly, but you see it alongside Vetinari's just more elegant metaphors. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's not a bad little analogy, but it's not Vetinari. And I think Pratchett I th I'm pretty sure Pratchett wrote it as not quite as good as Vetinari's. But still pretty um, good. Metaphor. Yeah, but still, you know, pretty good because Cosmo's mm, all right at it. <laughs> and then especially next to Pucci, who then goes on about, um, you know, the caterpillar and the <laughs> Yeah, when he's going on about metamorphosis and becoming a beautiful butterfly. And she's like, yeah, but the caterpillar doesn't become a butterfly. It becomes soup. And then yeah. the soup becomes a butterfly. <laughs> it's a fun contrast. Um, I do like this idea that, uh, what does it say? As he filled the occult space occupied by Vetinari, the wretched man would feel himself getting weaker, which kind of uh, links in nicely to some stuff with the glooper that I'll talk about a bit later. <laughs> some stuff with the glooper. Stuff with the glooper. I just like saying glooper. glooper. Gloop. Um, but yeah, making his deal with Cribbins when he's just sat there writing Vetinari. Yeah, it's so crazy. It's talking great. to his picture. Um, it was like Vetinari says something like, and tomorrow you'll be a beautiful butterfly. And Cosmo like, the man's gone mad. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, speaking of Poochie. Yes, yeah. Really fun in this. Uh, I, I like the line. Lovely Poochie. little foil. Poochie thought she was beautiful and that grated on Cosmo's nerves. <laughs> but there's also a really nice contrasting bit where he's sort of thinking she's useful to have around to talk to. She saw things from a softer female perspective. You should have Bent killed, she said. <laughs> yes, the uh, Cosmo's idea of what a sister is and Poochie's just unwavering commitment to not being that. <laughs> <laughs> but he still kind of tries to fool himself with it. And yeah, the just incredible confidence with which she admits the family crimes. Yes, it's like, <clears throat> yes, fine, absolutely, we've been doing this, who fucking cares? I'm going to keep talking as I'm dragged away, because I'm just sick of all of this. Obviously we're in the right, just proper, spot-on Nepo baby stuff, you know. The way she keeps calling it silly. Yeah. The, the use of the word silly is really perfect in that situation. And it's quite funny, because it almost, you know, it's what Moist have been saying, isn't it? Oh, yeah, very much. <laughs> um, but it's... Uh, yeah, without the same 
with extra crimes, I suppose, is the main problem there. <laughs> yes, there is a lot more crimes there. Uh, so, Mr. Bent, let's talk about Mr. Bent. Oh, yay, we finally get the... I, uh, yeah, I, I really didn't remember the twist till the last moment, so that was nice. <laughs> the, one of the point of view switches I noted down that I really like is when um, uh, Vesinari is talking to Drumnot about... Um, Mr. Bent says uh, he arrived here as a child on a cart owned by some travelling accountants, and then Moist asks, what, like tinkers and fortune tellers in a different place in a different scene? Yes, yes, and that's a that's a point of view switching tropey thing I like. The the general clown thing I love that this is such a late in the day payoff from the the introduction of the clowns guild as this grey faced uh, minimalist place uh, back a in miserable fucking, place. What was it? Uh, whichever one had the gone in it. Oh, even earlier than that. I mean, Weird Sisters, and you learn about oh, a lot of, course, of the fool's the background. Fool. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, and then Men at Arms, yeah, where you really yeah. see a lot more of it. But I love it's the foreshadowing is really great because mm. all the vampire foreshadowing is so obvious. Yeah, it becomes like after the first bit of foreshadowing, you're like, all right, no, this is way too yeah. clumsy for Pratchett. Like, this obsessed is like a with Scarlet Herring. There's literally it's in the um, blurb on the back of my copy. At least the chief cashier is almost certainly a vampire. Mm. And there's even oh, like right. a, there's a summary of it right before the actual or close to the actual reveal, you know, where Moist is thinking, well, he's tall and dark and gets in before dawn and leaves after dark and Mr. Fusspot growls at him and he's a compulsive counter and obsessive over detail and sleeps on a long thing bed. <laughs> and yeah, all the stuff about the fact that he lives at Mrs. Cakes. And then the full stuff is like comparatively so subtle. Mm. Yeah, the foot thing and the... The shoes, the name, which I brought up last week, this whole Malvolio thing, who was puritanical and really humorless, but puts on his yellow stockings and acts the fool because he's tricked by a letter. Which also, just a uh, fun sidebar, I forgot, I was I was looking for some quotes from the Malvolio bit and then realised we don't need me doing lots of Shakespeare. Um, but the letter from Twelfth Night is uh, the origin of some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Really? Yeah. Which I was pretty sure that was Shakespeare, but I couldn't have told you what play it was from, so that's well, like me. If I told you it was Shakespeare, I'd have well, hazarded a guess at one of the usual misquoters. Yeah, true. You know. Francis Churchill Bacon. Bacon. Just to start attributing every Wild of Bacon. Wild um, of Bacon. I'll tell you what, if you want to feel bad about um your uh word per minute output, which I'm sure mm-hmm. you do. Um All the time. Anthony Trollope. I was listening to something about him on this week's No Such Thing as a Fish. Uh, very, very, um, what's the word, prolific. Yeah, I don't want to think about it. Okay. I'll cry. Anyway, yeah, so the full, the full foreshadowing mm. is very clever. And then the actual reveal is so heartbreaking. They laughed at him. I know. <laughs> and he went and he cried and he took his makeup off. As he said, mm. And then he um, resolves both sides of himself, the accountant side and the clown side. He turns up to work with his red nose on in his suit and ready to run the yeah. bank. Um, Miss Drapes. What about her? I Pull yourself love together, her. woman. I know, but I love her. She's, you know, <laughs> no, way I, too I was open. making a doctor, Dr. Drapes. Oh, sorry. Sorry. We're both really on the ball tonight. <laughs> Incredible. We're just wandering on completely different paths of nonsense. <laughs> She's um, trying to push for making her retelling of events to Mr. Bent more exciting. She's a big fan of the Tansy Bugle. Miss Drapes would love a true crime podcast. Oh, absolutely. 
Um, she tried to add excitement. She painted the walls with exclamation marks and he did not budge. Perfect. <laughs> There's also, there's a great detail. She has decided, all she knew was she was going to follow this to the end. After all, she spent the night in a man's bedroom and Lady Deirdre Wagon had a lot to say about that. Absolutely. Which is really funny, but it's also great that in the book, it sets up the etiquette boat book as a recurring joke with Gladys. And then yeah. because it's been established through that, it then becomes a very useful shorthand for Miss Drapes' character. Yeah. The fact that she considers that tells you everything you need to know about her. Yeah. Especially when she's also like, Especially as in a very technical sense, she actually wasn't a ruined woman. <laughs> she hadn't had the fun bit to go along with it. Yeah. If I'm going to be ruined, I'd like to be ruined. Thank you. Oh, what um, was the line? Um, uh, later in the courtroom. Oh, if a battle goddess were allowed to have a respectable yeah. blouse and hair escaping rapidly from a tight bun, then Miss Drapes could have been deified. I really want to draw that. Please do. Mm. Thank you. I'll say that, what was it? I'm, I'm, she decided she'd rather be a scarlet woman than a grey one. Yes. Yes. Everything about her character is so fun in this, especially for a side character. She's just so deeply realised. I know. And she was so in love with Mr. Ben as was, and yet it's still so when he's got this completely opposite side of him. Yeah. I guess she must have known there was a hidden something there. I mean, she was willing to go and find him when she thought he was a vampire. So Yeah, she's, she's like, willing to oh, see. Oh, clown. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> Honestly, that's quite all right. You're planning about them whitewashing the room rather inefficiently, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> she's got going to be a whitewash wedding. Uh, uh. She's just got enough of a lack of sense of humour to make it work. Uh. Um, and then Hubert, sweet little Hubert. Oh, little Hubert. The scene where he meets Adora um, and just sort of forgets how to person... Yes. And he sort of panically looks at her and says, I welded 1,097 joints and I blew the layer of diminishing returns. So it's how I Good. think I'd end up speaking to Adora Bell, to be fair. Oh, yeah, 100%. I'm not judging him for this. I very yeah. much support him for this. Yeah, Hoomst yeah. among us. Hoomst, indeed. Um, bless his panicked outbursts of mad scientist laughter as well. Oh, yeah. I feel like that must be very cathartic. At some point, I'm going to try and remember to do a mad scientist laugh on my drive to work. That being the only time I can, like, reliably make a mad noise and not have anyone hear me. Ah, yeah, it's the nice thing about living alone. I mean, my neighbours can probably hear me, but yeah. I don't care about them. No, I mean, if anything, you want the reputation as mad scientist, don't you? True. Very true. Um, sorry, I confused no, myself there. Quite all right, sorry. <laughs> And then later on, he does. Uh, he needs a similar push towards um, eloquence in the courtroom. Yes, when he's bringing up this economic impact of the new golems, and this, so, but I really like he uses. He says circulation is everything. The money goes around creating wealth as it does so, which again mm. brings up this theme we've been talking about about how a dollar becomes lots of things and remains a dollar. Yes, and seeing that everything has to move all the time. Yes, but, you know, same with the postal service. Yeah. The letters have to be delivered. This has to move. This has to go. Go, go, go. Right, now we're money. Money has to move now. We can't keep the fucking money in the vault. Are you insane? Everything has to move because I'm Moist von Litvig. <laughs> Does Moist make things move or do things need to move and therefore need Moist von Litvig? Uh, probably both because of physics. Ah, yes. And let's not go any further <laughs> on that subject. So Gladys. <laughs> um, the etiquette stuff about dusting is very funny. It's like, oh yes, I shall move the desk so I can dust under it. Yes. 
Um, and I feel kind of Clum. mean for finding it funny right after the conversation about, you know, briefly considering changing the words in her head and realizing how awful that would be. Yes. Ooh, yeah. But a, but a lovely um, extra bit to our lobotomy speedrun. Oh, yes. Very much so. Um, and the lady wagon says that any bodies found during a weekend party should be disposed of discreetly in case of scandal. Mm-hmm. Which is good advice. <laughs> like, oh, oh, I see. There's some extra spicy bits in that focus there. <laughs> spicy etiquette. That would be a fun headcanon one day. What? Write, Spice? You write some um, extracts from a Discworld etiquette book. Excellent. Yeah, we should try that. We should do that. And then, yeah, her attitude changes with her new book, Why Men Get Under Your Feet by Reverentia Flout. Absolutely. Pratchett's got a gift for names. And um, Moist has this guilt at the way the golems have been over-anthropomorphised, which I think it helps him finally understand the sarcasm over Mr. Pump on a new level. You know, when mm. he says, oh, we call him Mr. Pump, and Adora's, oh, and do you feel good about yourself when you do that? Yeah. And he thinks about... um he can't tell Gladys not to take the book seriously because of how important words are to golems. You know, they believe in words. Words give them life. I can't just tell her we just throw them around like jugglers. We change their meaning to suit ourselves. Golems view words like Bent views numbers and gold. It is interesting to think of a whole species that sees words as immalleable as we see digits, yeah. Yeah. Um, hmm. Adora Bell in these moments reminds me of a very dedicated environmentalist or something who is you know fr frustrated with the anthropomorphization of whatever animals they are very involved with so like no 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 you don't need to project your cute little your cute little narrative onto my penguins my penguins are very interesting in their own right yes <laughs> i know golems are much more clever than well penguins Pen i assume i don't i've never spoken to a penguin um but, no i can't yeah. say i've had many chats with penguins in my life yeah but I wouldn't we, be averse to it if if a penguin wanted a chat. No, we just don't live in a penguin-rich environment. No, I feel like that's where we're going wrong in our lives. I don't know. I've never really seen a penguin-rich environment I fancy living in. Yeah, but maybe the lack of penguins... Right, I'm stopping us now. Um, Vimes. What about him? He, he is so He's done. pissed off with this. <laughs> caught between a moist and a lavish Ew. <laughs> he doesn't really like either side of this no but he, I think he definitely knows which he prefers but he's not happy about it yeah he didn't like the man much and was certain that Vimes didn't like him at all he was even more certain though that Vimes did not readily take orders from the likes of Cosmo Lavish no there's that luck luckily chip on the shoulder there definitely inflamed more by Cosmo Lavish than by Moist von Litvig even though Litvig has a, a touch of the Criminal. Criminal. And, and the posho, I thought, until we just learned about his Amish days. Yeah. I mean, he definitely has the vibe of posho, even if he's not from those beginnings. No. Yeah. Exactly. Different he, kind of He posho. is, after all, dressed in gold. Yes. <laughs> very new <laughs> money, I though. I feel like Vimes might be... Not a fan not of. Not in love with. Yeah. Yeah. I did often think about... What if we got this or that scene from Vimes's perspective as I was reading through this, which is always fun? Or what would Vimes think of this ending? Or what would the ending be if this had been a Vimes book? That kind of thing. Um, I do think this is a whole book that's really interesting to imagine yeah. from Vimes's perspective because yeah. the watch come in so early on and there's so much criminal activity happening under the surface of the book. Exactly. Like, I don't think you can get Cosmo Lavish's end um, 
if if Vimes is in charge because you know it's a funny ha ha whatever end. Whereas the Vimes needs his justice. Yeah. Um, and or you know the con- the the rest of the lavishes seem to disperse or whatever, and that might happen. But you'd have a lot of uh, inner turmoil about it. Yes, and frustration. Yes. Um, um, and, and of course, the bu- the bubbling anger and the, the violence beneath the surface, which you don't get with Moise von Lipvig, which saves time for other nonsense. <laughs> Tap dancing, mostly. Yeah. There's a nice callback as well. Um, in the rat's chamber, there was a large axe buried in the big table. Moise noticed the force of it had split the wood. It had clearly been there for some time. Perhaps it was some kind of warning or some kind of symbol. Uh, which calls back that to... That was Vimes, wasn't it? Well, we never actually see it. Ha- it's in Feast of Clay. And we don't actually see it, but we know Vimes mm-hmm. enters a room and later that room has an axe in the table and people have changed their minds about certain things. Got it. So, yeah, that was Vimes. We also hear back from Dorfel in this one, don't we? So that's a nice couple of links back. Yeah, there's a nice little reference to Dorfel yeah. who kind of represents the city golems as much I, as they have a representative. Before I forget, the most callbacky callback I found in this se- section was the magical lock. And didn't we have a magic lock in fucking Colour of Magic or Light Fantastic or something? This lock could, or maybe it was in Sorcery, this lock could be undone by fucking anything. It could be the, the colour of the twilight or the, yeah, the we definitely of a had Spanish gnat or, you know. Yeah, it, we definitely yeah. had that in one of the early wizard yeah. books. Might have been one of the looks that was, but locks, that was, so there was a book, Oh, the book, there? yeah. That had the great spells in. Yeah, yeah, the octave. Octavo. Octave, thank you. Uh, yeah. But I, I could be wrong. Listeners, if you remember, tell us. Mm. Yeah, why Cause... not? Let's just keep tying it back to the first books at this point. <laughs> Some desperate attempt to not let go. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Um, Slan and the lawyers. Just, mm. I like it. It's kind of notable that Slan has fuck all to do with this book's antagonists, the bad guys. Yeah. Not... And yet he's very frightening. Oh, the... When he sits all of the lawyers down... Uh, Mr. Slant did not, despite what being said, have the respect of Ankh Pork's legal profession. He commanded its fear. Death had not diminished his encyclopedic memory, his guile, his talent for corkscrew reasoning, and the vitriol of his stare. Do not cross me this day, advised the lawyers. Do not cross me, for if you do, I will have the flesh from your very bones and the marrow within. Ooh. Absolutely great. Gone scary, zombie, not not comic zombie anymore. He was never the funniest of the zombies. No, but you know, there's just they're they they've been a, a funny kind of species, not species, but you know. Yeah, there's been there's, there's been some entertainment in the subset <laughs> yeah. that is zombies, and yeah, slant is just not that. No. We also see his, his colleagues, don't we? Whatever they were called, which I don't honeycomb and something. Yes, I haven't got it written down. Yeah. Um. And Fleed. Fleed gets a nice ending. Mm, what an unpleasant man. It's unpleasant, but I think it's it's funny unpleasant, not oh, actually yeah. Oh yeah, unpleasant. no, it's distasteful unpleasant, not... <laughs> and I love his his total lack of understanding of what the Pink Pussycat Club is when Moist is trying to promise it to him. It's sort of, you mean, it's smutty. Yeah. D- do they show their ankles? It's def- definitely among the parts they show, yeah. <laughs> Before I completely uh, forget about this, by the way, um, Mr. Fussbot, has he just gone off to live with Vatnari now, or did he give him back? 
I think Vastanari's adopted him. He's just I kept him. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. That it brings that's me joy, crazy. and I'm not yeah. going to argue with that. But I hope Moist visits often. Oh, I'm sure he does. Oh, I'm glad Vetnari has a funny looking little dog. He should. Um, all right. Little bits be liked. Ooh. The power of belief, but make it gloopy. Mmm. That's a recipe. That's a recipe for we something. Cornflour or? Yeah, cornflour. If you've got some good chicken stock, that can. Yeah. <laughs> How to thicken my power of belief, Joanna? Please tell me. <laughs> Uh, so the glooper has become so accurate that it now controls the economic state of the city. Mm. And I like this idea of when the facsimile becomes the thing. And I think it ties nicely into this running power of belief bit. Yes. Um, where something has become dangerously accurate. I feel like there is a better word for when the facsimile becomes the thing. And I can't remember what it is. Uh, yeah, you're probably right. Neither can I. Neither of uh, us have had a lot of sleep lately. Don't worry about it. So, Eagle's explanation where he drops the lisp for a bit to make it easier. Uh, the term cargo cult world passed and was followed by a short dissertation on the hypothesis that all water everywhere knows where all the other water is, some interesting facts about hyphenated silicon and what happens to it in the presence of cheese, the benefits and hazards of morphic resonation in areas of high background magic, the truth about identical twins, and the fact that if the fundamental occult maxim as above, so below was true, then so was as, abo- as below, so above. Which mm-hmm. I thought was just, a re- it's a really fun detail in this book that I love. I love Eagle's um, compulsive dropping of his lisp, like intentional here yeah. and then accidentally later and Moist clocks yeah. it. One uberbaldy into another. <laughs> um, I did also do a brief bit of research into where As Above, So Below comes from. Uh, and it comes from a translation of the Emerald Tablet, which is one of the hermetic texts. And then I stopped because that's a very deep rabbit hole to go down. Did we not go into that in Science of Discworld? Um, I don't think we did, did we? Good grief. No, we d- I don't. We definitely haven't done the hermetic tests. No, no, tests. no. I, I know there was a lot of talk of as above, so below, but we, yeah. we never got that. Yeah, no, that is a rabbit hole. All right. Um, Let's, what about uh, you? Teeter on the precipice of that and uh, come back. Um, Let's <laughs> yank ourselves back well towards done. the travelling accountants, Francine. <laughs> oh yay! Um, love Pratchett's commitment to the travelling professionals and the foundlings and the general world building around these peoples. Um. I also like Moist's off-the-cuff headcanon about them. Whole families of them. It must be a wonderful life. Every day a new ledger. And by night they drink beer and happy-laughing accountants dance the double-entry polka to the sound of accordions. (laughs) Do they? said Miss Drapes nervously. I don't know. It would be nice to think so, said Moist. (laughs) I love that Moist automatically has a romantic view of anything that involves this kind of traveling nomadic lifestyle yeah because it ties into a lifestyle he had but his was lonely Mm. i also love that the traveling accountants you know saved mr bent pretty much immediately after his horrible debut took him in right away yeah i just yeah i'm sure they were a lovely lovely bunch lovely bunch of of coconuts um (laughs) of a coke no uh wardrobes wardrobes inherently frightening Yes, I think so. Uh, so in Hogfather, we obviously have the frightening nightmare wardrobe, and here we have the the build up and foreshadowing of the incongruously large wardrobe than what Mister Bent shoves his secrets in. Um, as it turns out, the he- the heated sack full of clown gear, but it, it it seems to loom even larger in his imagination. This wardrobe, 
Mm. And why, why do we think why do we think wardrobes are so frightening? Well, I mean, we've got another wardrobe as well, which is Sir Joseph's special wardrobe, um, and that gets a lot of sort of looming foreshadowing thing before you open it and find out what's actually in there. Which oh, is a very yeah. different sort of horror. Quite right. Yes, <laughs> there is something very frightening about a wardrobe. I mean, and you'd think it, there'd be a potential for wonder in a wardrobe, thanks to um, C.S. Lewis, but yeah. And I, I suppose think- there is potential for wonder, isn't there? But at night time, that potential for wonder is potential for fear because a, a wardrobe is big enough to hold something frightening, isn't it? I suppose is the thing. And it's the sort of thing where a door can often be ajar, or maybe that's just my wardrobe because I haven't stored mm. my dresses properly. <laughs> <laughs> but, but a slightly yeah, ajar. Cra- yeah. Yeah. And you can't see what's in there because it's dark and, and because it's full of stuff. Mm. And in the old days when a lot of our favourite kids' books were written, the, the would but would have been a lot more ornate carving by default, casting odd shadows on onto the door and Yeah, there's a lot of room for horror with a wardrobe. Yeah. And it is a place where you shove things. It is. In a in a um purely, you know, getting something out of the way, put something at the back of the wardrobe. Well I always imagine that's what the where in the where the sun does not shine, am I right? That's a... Absolutely, yeah, back of the wardrobe. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I, just, I should be careful about using a phrase like where one shoves things, considering Sir Joseph's special cupboard. <laughs> no, it's the other one. No, don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, I, I just uh, I just wanted to to think aloud when it came to wardrobe. Scary always. Listeners, answers on... Uh, Not a wardrobe. Yeah. <laughs> on a moth-eaten piece of fabric. Thank you. Um, so yeah, speaking of the special cupboard, uh, horseradish. Wonderful oh, yeah. analogy from Adora here. It is, isn't it? I enjoyed that very much. Uh, horseradish is good in a beef sandwich, so you have some, but one fa- one day a spoonful just doesn't cut the mustard, as it were. As it were. <laughs> and so you have two, and soon it's three, and eventually there's more horseradish than beef, and then one day you realise the beef fell out and you didn't notice. Uh, moist immediately saying, but I've known you to have a horseradish sandwich. <laughs> Because Adora would. But I also think it's fun to compare it to um, much earlier, and I don't remember exactly which one. Vimes has these musings on sex compared to oh, food. Kink think, versus fetish. Yes. And uh, well, kink versus fetish is in a different book, I think. It's the uh-huh. difference between a feather and a chicken. That's right. Uh, Vimes' musings is people will imagine la- elaborate feasts, but ah. at the end of the day, they'll be happy with sausage, egg, and chips. Yes. Yes. Very, da- very down to earth views on sex, these books. Mm. when it has to be mentioned at all. <laughs> so yeah, horseradish yes, I mean, versus sausage, egg and chips. <laughs> not not to get post-watershed on the podcast, but I have to say I agree with the general distaste over those kind of rooms full of. I always find the, the shops full of just vaguely unsettling. Yeah, no, it's and, a lot. In the same way that libraries place. and the, the words all have the power and the space-time continuum. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that is just, that's too many of that all in one place yes should be spaced out (laughs) kept in a wardrobe no no even smaller (laughs) discreet drawer thank you um oh yeah and so i want to talk about the epilogue and i want to talk about it here rather than oh sorry let me try that again i want to talk about the epilogue Mm -hmm. i want to talk about it here because i really love why the epilogue came to be in the book there's a really great anecdote about it in rob's book and i won't read out the whole thing because it's like three pages long <laughs> but the timeline of this so the book has been finished and revised and edited and sent off to the publishers and terry yeah. pratchett thought he was in the the honeymoon period between books as rob calls it when 
Jennifer Brell from US HarperCollins calls him. This is the same Jennifer from the thud anecdote. Jennifer, are you crying? Yes. When the book <laughs> Just at least. <laughs> um, so Jennifer Brell has become a hero to me. Yes. Um, she basically calls and says that the book is great, but can we tie up the story of Cosmo Lavish at the end? It's flapping in the wind a bit. And Terry Bratchett is understandably irritated, especially as these changes need to be made in within 24 hours. Mm. And the really relatable bit is that, you know, he's got 24 hours to add something to this book to tie up this story. Does he sit down and immediately work? He does not. No, he goes to look at a fallen tree, checks right. in on the tortoises. They need checking on. Plays some Elder Scrolls for Oblivion for a bit. Well, when else um, are you going to have the time? Does some admin. Uh, pub do. lunch. The Yum. book is not discussed as the pub lunch. Bubble and squeak is eaten. <laughs> um, decide a trip to the garden centre is necessary. Um, Before it closes. Play some more Elder Scrolls for Oblivion. <laughs> Got to finish the quest. <laughs> <laughs> there is within this anecdote, uh, which is in, I think, chapter 17 in the book. Um, this this uh, is a life with footnotes, by the way. Yeah, this a Rob, life with Rob's footnotes. Book. Sorry, Rob is there. <laughs> um, Overly familiar. <laughs> Just the book, you should know what we're yeah, talking yeah. about. You know, the other one, the other book. <laughs> the one that Mark didn't write. Yeah. <laughs> the other award-winning Pratchett biography. <laughs> um, so, yeah, plays some more Elder Scrolls for Oblivion. It gets dark, so Rob goes home for dinner and then comes back to the chapel. Uh, Terry Pratchett is still playing Elder Scrolls for Oblivion. It was a longer than he thought. <laughs> uh, Rob gives in and goes home to bed. And the next morning comes in dreading that they now only have a few hours to do this. And you see a post-it on the computer screen saying, tidy this up and get, across, get this across to Jennifer. And just this bit from Rob's book. I open the word file and there they are. The three pages beginning whiteness, coolness, the smell of starch. Exactly as they now appear, entirely unaltered, in the epilogue at the end of Making Money. At some point after midnight, following a day of gaming and dealing with tortoises and fiddling about in the greenhouse and stomping around at the garden centre, Terry has laid down this concluding passage, perfectly answering the brief. Um, there is nothing for me to do but forward those pages directly to New York. In my opinion, it's the best ending of any of Terry's books. Oh. And it is a really perfect ending. It's a lovely end. It's not my favourite, because just sim simply because... It's not a character I'm in love with. And That's fair. It's always more satisfying to see a, a nice ending for a character you're in love with. However, it is beautiful. It's very neat. It's beautiful. It's neat. Um, and when Cosmo won the eyebrow raising contest two weeks later, it was the happiest he'd ever been. Yeah. I think this is what I mean about like it not being a Vimes book. Because we can take a little bit of joy and amusement in the bad guy, who has really caused quite a lot of, you know, murder. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a lot of murder. Yeah, getting to just be happily insane. I think part of the reason we can take joy in it is that the person who actually did the physical, a lot of the physical murdering, Mr. Cranberry, has himself been murdered by an inflatable uh, balloon animal. Yes, yes. As opposed to the non-inflatable balloon mm. animal. Um, we didn't even mention the bit of stygium surgery, did we? I mentioned it in the summary, but yes, it's yeah. the exploding stygium ring yeah. removes the poisonous nonsense. Yeah. Lovely bit of a lovely bit of quick thinking from Moist, mm. who twigs that that's what's going to need to happen, and that the ring will do the job. That's a nice uh, other bit of cutting away from the action, isn't it? As well, and uh, the callback saying that somebody had got the photo of it happening. Yes, that's a uh, very Moist von Litvig way of doing it. And it's why it's nice that we do get the epilogue because yeah, well, we find out that the 
the surgery of the ring worked, mm. but then we that means that Cosmo isn't dead, so that mm. that's the bit that's left flapping. Yeah, because I think if you didn't have the reference to the thing exploding, it would yeah. still work. But I think the reader would assume that Cosmo was killed. Yes, yes, definitely. And perhaps yeah. if this was a Vimes book, he would have been. Yeah, it, it really was a um, it's, it's a very pleasing image. A, a whole ward full of people pretending to be veterinary, and you know what an underlining of the man's charisma. That so many rulers people. have a ward full of people convinced they're them. That's a dangerous form of charisma. Yeah. So do you want to go on to the bigger stuff and talk about political ideas? Yeah, not in any great depth, really. Um, you'll be pleased to hear. Um, Greatly pleased. <laughs> I, uh, I, I just really enjoyed the way that Pratchett managed to shoehorns not the right word, because it's not shoehorned, but, but neatly summarise so many huge ideas in really the last third of this book. Um, but, you know, uh, hinted at throughout. Uh, but first of all, the, the one that I highlighted in the first place is the idea of empire. Um, yeah. the, this, we, we haven't really explored the Ankh-Morpokian empire. It clearly has echoes of the British or echoes of one of the Western, you know, imperial powers. Yeah. I highlighted it first because of the line, surely a little bit of conquest would be in order, an empirate perhaps. Which is Very much so. Slightly us, <laughs> but yeah, and then just the that running on to the we use our slaves to create more slaves, but do we want to face the whole world in arms? For that is what we would do at the finish. The best that we could hope for is that some of us would survive. The worst is that we would triumph, triumph and rot. That is the lesson of history, Lord Downey. Are we not rich enough? And, and that's sorry. sorry. That's something that's been explored in earlier books where Ankh-Morpork mm. used to be as, as warring yeah. as, as any other place and now the national anthem is we own you wholesale. Exactly. They no longer dominate through strength of arms, they just sell everyone's weapons. Yeah. And it, it's more it's more so than the, the more modern imperial powers, actually. I think it's, it's looking into the ancient empires as well. You know, when you look at the... Uh, Ac- I can never get the fucking... Agatean. No. Um, oh. Real world, <laughs> right? It's throwing me off now. But the Persians and all that, yeah. <laughs> um, the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and the the you know the Macedonians and then just the 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 eventual truth that once you start an empire going, you have to keep it going because you're constantly fighting the borders and you're constantly fighting rebellions and you have to keep expanding and expanding and eventually it does implode. That yeah. always happens. Yeah, just very neatly summarised in one little. Let's not do an empire. Guys, yeah. not even a little one. <laughs> not even a little empire, because that's how it starts. You start with a little empire, you know. Before you know it, you've started a land war in Asia, and in you should never get into a land war in Asia. <laughs> and then, yeah, I mean, this is obviously the big one through the book, as is the currency standard, the the gold standard. Yeah, which is just a, a very fun, depending on your idea of fun, a very interesting thing to look into and and study and uh, get upset about. Um, <laughs> but Poochie's like rant about how the, the gold still exists, doesn't it? And rings and things. It's not like anyone's going to throw it away. Who cares where it is? Which, you know, is pretty much what Moist has been saying and is a very yeah. good point. Um, and then Moist's kind of going, all right, fine, we'll put you on the fucking golem standard. They're going to stay put. They're incredibly valuable. Why shouldn't it be that? Um, 
They could build canals and dam floods, level mountains and make roads. If we need them to, they will. And if we don't, they'll help to make us rich by doing nothing. And now the gold standard isn't really so much of a, a thing. Currency is kind of based off the reliability of nations. In this case, we, we've had to transfer it to a to a physical source of power because yeah. we're still in Discworld. And then, of course, the, the interesting bit is that the vault refills. Yeah. I'm not sure about that bit. I'm not sure what that says about the next part, you know? I, uh, not so much speculation on the future, but one bit of speculation I have is when the vault refills, is it new gold or does all the gold that was previously sold and turned into jewellery, etc., disappear I, and reappear as the gold in the vault? I think that one. Because, because it's I being think, put I don't back think the by glue can make new liquid. No. I think you have to move it from somewhere. So maybe it's from all those places or maybe it's... Or maybe it is new gold in that they've moved it from some mine, in which case you really are going to piss off the dwarves. Yeah. But yeah. And just the line, let us make money based not on a trick of geology, but on the ingenuity of hand and brain. It's a lovely That's a great line. And uh, didn't didn't come to fruition, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the headcanon that Moist just never yeah. tells anyone it's there, just locks mm. that vault. It's only for his peace of mind. Yeah. If it all goes wrong, we do At least have we've got a, a vault, vault full of gold. gold. We've got it there. It's quite funny, really, he spends the whole book arguing against the value of gold when that was his entire raison d'etre for most says, of his life. He says in Going Postal, after he gets the coins and uses it for mm. the post office, something along the lines of the money was really just a way of keeping score. That's true, yeah, he didn't really care. He, he wasn't dragonish with it, was he? Yeah. He wasn't a... He was a, a, the reason it a wasn't storer, not a hoarder. Yeah, the reason it wasn't squirrel. spent is because there was nothing he cared enough to spend yeah. it on. Yeah, yeah. Yes, the, the squirrel type of hoarder, not the dragon type of hoarder, I suppose. Yes. The, yeah, the two. I can't imagine two genders sleeping squirrel on a dragon. <laughs> yeah, squirrel and dragon. Um, As a non-binary person, I am a squaggon. Terrible. Drural, no, drural's worse. Yeah, okay, squaggon. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds a bit like a nickname for Miss Whatever Wagon, though, doesn't it? <laughs> Miss Deirdre Wagon. Uh, have you read Squaggon? Wagon, Dwagon. <laughs> <laughs> We've blown this thing wide open, <laughs> much like a custard pie. pie the, the last one I wanted to look at was um, just the idea of political dignity and how easily it can be undermined. And mm -hmm. I don't really know whether that is so much. I don't know if there are any real world examples of somebody going to, like, crumbling under the, the PR strain of one humiliation like this. Um, <laughs> I think historically there might have been more, but I mean, yeah. based on the current British political cycle. Oh, God. But yeah, readers, uh, listeners, even both. Why not? <laughs> um, please send me in your suggestions on this written on the bottom of a shoe hurled at a president, of course. But this, it, it's definitely a trope. It's definitely like a, just thinking of like the movie 300, the idea of the, the God King, the Emperor King bleeding and that being. Yeah the start of the end of his reign, even though that has no fucking basis in historical whatever. It's yeah. just, you know, it's a moment that stuck with me out of that whole book, um, that whole movie rather. Um, you know, more so I'd say than the unrealistic listening muscles. And that's, you know, saying something. God, I forgot how ridiculous that <laughs> it movie really is. Was very, you know, it's one of those, that that's kind of a, another horseradish thing, I think, is Hollywood and it's weird muscular thing, right? Yeah. It's like, oh man, just, you've gone too far out of the fucking. Ugh. Yep, horrible water fasted of... definition. Yeah. Anyway, stop dehydrating yourself, chaps. This particular paragraph would fit well into 
a Hamilton thing, by the way. I just thought I'd bring it back to Hamilton because why not? Oh, I'm wearing um, a Hamilton t-shirt. And Oh, well done. And I need you to tell me which song it is. I'm pretty sure it's one of the Skylar sisters singing it. And I've, mm-hmm. I've only watched this once with you. I've listened to the soundtrack a couple of times, but uh, his brain came, as Paul said, and delivered its thoughts all in one go, telling him what his legs had apparently worked out for themselves. The dignity of the great could rarely survive a face full of custard. A picture of the encustarded patrician on the front page of the Times rocked the power politics of the city. And most of all, then in a post-Betnari world, he, Moist, would not see tomorrow, which was one of his lifelong ambitions. It's like, three things hit me at the exact same oh, time. Oh, um, you are thinking of Satisfied, it's Angelica ah. Skyler's song. Um, uh, and I realised three fundamental things at the exact same time. Yeah. Just spare the listeners um, me trying to sing that, because... She, she hits <laughs> notes the like, dignity I don't of the great could rarely survive a face full of custard, is it? <laughs> right? <laughs> we are not writing a Hamilton-esque hip-hop Discworld musical for soon. Very well. But I think you'll come to regret that. <laughs> that's not a threat. That's a, that's a prediction. I regret it already. I'm an encustarded fate. <laughs> <laughs> it, and it also just gives us the opportunity to, to jointly glory in the picture of Vetinari capturing a handful of custard tasting it and saying, I do believe it is pineapple to a thunder of applause, which I, I think should take us into some kind of clowning talking point, shouldn't it, Joanna? I love the moment so much. Vesinari's ability to put spin on, he knows he, that he is getting even more of the front page. I know. The, the, the bit afterwards where the Times is struggling for all of the things to put on the front page in that. Oh, that's very funny, yeah. Putting a spin on custard, what a, what a moment. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I want to talk about this idea of only by consent of the clowns. This is um, what Bent says when he enters as Charlie Benito, uh, and it was set up earlier when um, Moise says something about the mm. ringmaster running the circus, and you get yes, another good foreshadowing yes, yes. bit of Bent going, does he? Yes, yeah. Bent, Bent was like unnecessarily pissed off by it but it didn't really stand out that much because he's very pissed off by everything to do with frippery yeah so it seems like it's just bent being annoyed about this turning yeah. into a circus when yeah bent, it, i mean he was annoyed um and he shouts my jolly good pal mr lipvig shouted the clown you think the ringmaster runs the circus do you only by the consent of the clowns mr lipvig only by the consent of the clowns I think it's wonderful to take that and explore this idea of figureheads within Ankh Morpork. Mm, okay. And something I love that Terry Pratchett does is that he'll introduce something like this, and it's not someone says this, and now this is universally factual and everyone does need consent of the clowns, but he yeah. gives this and then there's so much room to explore it. And so you have Moist and Mr. Fussbot as figurehead leaders. Mm. You know, Mr. Fussbot is the chairman of the bank, but obviously in that case it's a figurehead position because he's a small dog. Um, and then you have Moist, who is so style over substance that when it when it comes to leadership, that really he needs the consent of Mr. Bent to get any of this to work. And it's layers yeah. on layers of <laughs> ringmasters and clowns. And there's layered this like some kind of pie, <laughs> custard pineapple custard pie. <laughs> the idea of pineapples and custard sounds really gross to me. By the way, I think there's something about the acidity of it that just doesn't appeal. Oh, see, I, maybe I'm just hungry because I fancy that. Yeah. Ah, uh, see, I'm, pineapple I'm, and custard is the thing I've eaten. I'm sure it is. Oh, yeah. I don't think it's a non-existent combination. It's just not one that appeals to me personally. Appeals. That'd be funnier (laughs) if it was banana, sorry. (laughs) Bananas and custard. Um, There's this big idea running through the book of bananas and custard. No, of uh, consenting to power and how that works in a tyrant-led city. 
So mm. then you start thinking about Vesinari as this ringmaster figure and what he does to cons- gain the consent of the clowns. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really fascinating when they're having that, that war conversation, um, Downey, uh, being one of the clowns, really. Yeah. And then some, uh, and really <laughs> pushing for war. And as you mentioned, Vesinari explaining why it's a bad idea, that triumph and Ross idea. Yeah. And then when Moist runs to Fleed and he's trying to get Fleed to, to give him the vocabulary. Mm. And Fleet's doing this, you know, very sulky, why should I? You're not pretty. Yeah. Um, which I think is unfair. I think Moist is very pretty. Well, true, but Fleet's got a type. True. And Moist says, because there are fools back there who want to use these golems to start a war, and Fleet's response is, then that will reduce the number of fools. Yeah. Oh, he's this very annoying type of eugenics-coded professor, isn't he? Ugh. Oh yeah, he is gross. But the use of fools in that, I think, is really yeah. intentional in this oh, bigger yeah. theme of clowns and, yeah. and consent. And then to go a layer deeper, um, because I'm being really normal about this. Further into the custard. To go further down into the trifle of the city. <laughs> Good new <laughs> oh, metaphor, we, we, lads. we completely skipped over the fog and the croutons, by the way. <laughs> no, we've gone straight to the trifle. Yeah, yeah. Or like, if we've got custard, I feel like the metaphor needs to be a trifle. Or okay, the city yeah, needs yeah. to be a trifle. We, we, we've completely... We've completely rewritten the menu of the fucking metaphorical weather today. We've got the we've got the pea soupy fog with the croutons. But now we're in the the trifle of the afternoon, are we? Trifle of the afternoon. We've got pineapple custard. We've got uh-huh. beef sauté with peas and onions. Uh-huh. Sorry, um, I don't need to reference friends in every conversation. Anyway, to go a layer deeper into the trifle, into that horrible soggy Swiss roll bit that I don't like. <laughs> which is why I don't like trifle. These guild leaders of the city believe they have power. They believe that they're in charge, but they inevitably bound to Vetinari the tyrant's wishes. They're figurehead leaders, and Vetinari is the one true clown. This is now getting very... <laughs> I'm aware this is now getting very wake-up people. Especially with that hint that Vetinari is like the one who told all the other world leaders how to command the golems to, to neutralise them. Um, but, sorry. <laughs> but what is a sword cane but a dangerous flower with a bulb of water at the end <laughs> what is a silver skull but a decorative red nose and but then we get this thing of how veterinary views the clowns mm-hmm. when we go to the fool's guild mm-hmm. they're tragic and we laugh at their tragedy as we laugh at our own the painted grin leers out at us from the darkness mocking our insane belief in order logic status the reality of reality the mask knows that we are born on the banana skin that leads only to the open manhole cover of doom, and all we can hope for are the cheers of the crowd. And bringing the mask back in when you have Mr. Bent having his inner monologue and fury at the mask that we had in the last section. But in that and the way Vetinari sees down to the heart of the clowns, he's not just the one true clown, he's fully transcended the circus. Yeah. Keep them laughing at you go. Remember that the last love is on you. <laughs> He's got to have had that in his head. <laughs> I feel like while writing that metaphor about the manhole cover and the yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that's my point. I think that's a just a great idea to dive or well, trifle to dive into. Yeah, I. It's very. It's giving Lord of Misrule. Yeah, it's giving. Yeah, it's giving. I I I like the. It's also giving one of Pratchett's things where you go so far into a concept, you come out the other side, like the cold waters at the other end of insanity. Yeah. So this like, is the, the cold sanity at the other end of chaos. It's the cold sanity at the other end of the clowns. Yeah. yeah. 
um, it's Dr. Whiteface writ large. It's like Vetinari is the puppet master and he's got a huge circus themed puppet show. Uh-huh. Bring it back to trifle. <laughs> it's like the last layer of the trifle <laughs> isn't Swiss roll after all. It's like Vetinari is. <laughs> as it should be. <laughs> Vetinari made the trifle and is presenting it to the great British Bake Off judges. No, okay. The metaphors run back, away from back. me. <laughs> Right, I've devolved into full-on wake-up geeple mode. So, Francine, what's your obscure reference for Neil for me? Many great men have been considered mad, Mr. Hubert. Even Dr. Hans Ford, Forward was called mad. But I put it to you, could a madman have created a revolutionary living brain extractor? Extractor? Um, Dr. Hans Ford. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hans Ford, I believe in this case, to be uh, the golf, I'm guessing, the golf technique. Your hands forward, you meant to have the hand, your hands forward uh, right. as, in relation to the ball as you smack it. Uh, please don't look at my hands, listeners who are watching also, because obviously I don't know how to play golf. <laughs> but my guess is the living brain extractor is smacking somebody with a golf iron. <laughs> this is mad theory as much as obscure reference, and I would love to hear everybody's thoughts um, arriving on golf balls through the window. <laughs> <laughs> Francine's window, please, not mine, because my entire flat is windows. And <laughs> no, no, none of our windows, just a window, a oh, comedy yeah. window in the street, carried by two, um, yeah, moving. two men, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. sugar glass, you know. Okay. No workmen were ha- were harmed in the making of this uh, out of control bit. <laughs> Joanna, help me finish the podcast. Stop it! Stop it all! <laughs> I've got, I've got nothing for you here. What, um, an outro? Oh, yeah. One of those. <laughs> right. That is everything we're going to say Don't on... Make me um, do it. <laughs> that's everything we're going to say on making money. Uh, we will be back with you on the 4th of March to begin our discussion of Unseen Academicals. Oh, my God. I know. I'm so excited. Uh, thought, oh. oh, brief correction. I speculated that this was the longest Dick's World book. It's not. Apparently, it is Unseen Academicals. Oh, that doesn't um, surprise me. That is yeah. a weapon of a book. I can't remember who said that in the Discord, but thank you. Um, so yeah, keep an eye on our socials to see how we are dividing the book up. Uh, in the until next time, dear listener, you can join our Discord link down below. You can follow us on Instagram at the True Show Make You Frat, on Twitter and Blue Sky at Make You Frat Pod, on Facebook at the True Show Make You Frat. Join our subreddit r slash ttsmyf. Email us your thoughts, queries, castle snacks, and fucking golf balls. Apparently, and trifles. The true shall make you fretpod at gmail dot com. Oh my god! To... Oh my god! The golf ball in the trifle is like the evolved bean in the <laughs> Francine, <laughs> the Lord of the Bean. I had a flow. Nah, it's fine. <laughs> Sorry. Um, if you want to support us financially and. God knows why you would uh, go to patreon.com forward slash true shall make you frat where you can exchange your hard-earned pennies for all sorts of bonus nonsense. And until next month, dear listener, just when it was going so well. Well, we went completely off the rails at the end there, but I think it worked. Yeah, it's fine. Bean in the beans. That's what it was. That's why I'm getting confused. The The uncooked bean in the cooked beans. There we, there we go. Much as a golf ball is no, shut up, Francine. But the point, this isn't the point, but I do like a trifle. I prefer a trifle that just has the jelly layer at the bottom, which is like yeah, the cheaper the Tesco sponge. ones do. Yeah, it's the damp sponge situation mm. that I can't be having with with the trifle. Yeah, And the other, you know, the, the benefits of a cheap trifle are twofold. No damp sponge as a general rule, and it's usually vegetarian jelly now. Ah, that's good. 
Mm. And mm. thought about that. I'm just, I don't think I'm ever going to be a trifle fan. No, that's fair. I, I'm not very big on horseradish, so. Well, Between well, us, we've got the food pun, the food, the food analogies covered on this. Yeah, um, you have I don't to know about that. The sheep skull with the sunglasses, I think, is a reference to something as well, by the way. Um, I assumed you'd be looking at it because it reminded me of fucking Blues Brothers or some shit. Uh, I, it vaguely clanged, but not enough that I could be bothered to go and uh, research. I thought it was just meant to be like a funny sight gag. Yeah, you might be right. I just googled it and i'm seeing a million ai generated oh, fuck my life 